Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, so I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast today. We're doing something a little bit different than our usual episodes. We did this last year, kind of a year-end wrap-up conversation with our um, COO, Jared Arnold. And and maybe let's start there, Jared. I'm not even sure you were the COO last year when we did this, were you? Yeah, I think I had just, uh, just gotten that title maybe in October of last year. So it was still pretty pretty new at the, at the time we did this last year. But certainly a testament to how much we've grown that you got a battlefield promotion, basically, with all this work you're doing. But for people who aren't familiar with your background or your role in the firm, maybe we can segue that into to the growth conversation, but yeah. give folks a little bit of, a, of an intro on yourself. Yeah, so public accounting tax background, staying about five years in, in public accounting, focusing on, on the tax side of things. Um, Brian, you brought me over here about three years ago, three and a half years ago to join Excelsior uh, with that in mind, right? You wanted that public accounting tax background um, and a CPA that could speak to people and, and um, you, you know, you found me. So um, that's kind of my origin story with Excelsior was brought over as, as controller or, you know, finance accounting director, whatever the title was at the time. And then just slowly started inserting myself into all areas of the business uh, to kind of get that that COO title that I have today. Well, it, for those of you who aren't familiar with Jared, he is being um, way too modest. I mean, he's become the most critical piece in the puzzle that is Excelsior Capital. And so kind of using last year as a reference, how many 
employees did we have in Q4 of last year? Last year, I think we'd hired two since the last time we did this. So I, I guess okay. we had seven last year uh, and, and have nine now. That being said, two of the seven that we had last year were had been just recently hired. So essentially, you know, in the last year since we since we last did this, we've we've grown by four people at a total of of nine, which is is pretty incredible on a on a pro rata basis. Yeah, and and what about uh, the numbers? Since you're my numbers guy, like yeah, acquisitions, AUM, square footage. What does all that look? Yeah, I mean we've we've grown pretty exponentially over the last call it twelve to eighteen months. You know, the last 12 months, we've done 36 million in, in equity capital under management, uh, did about 36 million in 2021 as well. So 72 across two years, pretty incredible assets under management. We've grown to about 250 million in the last three years um, and, and done 25 acquisitions. I think we're in nine states. Um, you know, we've we've seen a lot of growth over the last, call it 12 to 24 months. Um and, and you and I talked about coming out of 2020, just trying to capitalize on that window, right? To be able to to do opportunities. And and I think we have fully in this moment. I've, I've kind of reflected on it over the last couple of days thinking about this. And, you know, I feel grateful for for our ability to to kind of put the infrastructure in place in 2020 and then to capitalize on the events of the last two years. Yeah. And for folks who may not get the reference, we talk a lot of in our business internally about how there are moments in time that really lend themselves to making acquisitions, low interest rates, cheap debt relative to the cost of capital. Investor sentiment is positive and opportunities in the marketplace, right? People willing to transact, sellers in the market. And I remember talking to Jared and the team at the time two plus years ago, hey, based on my experience, I think we have an opportunity here to go out there and find some great opportunities and build some really good investor relationships. And I think you're right. I mean, I, looking back on it, I, I kind of reflected over the weekend, you know, we lost two deals kind of at the finish line. And so I think we had the chance to maybe do 10 or 11 acquisitions total, but doing what we've done the last 24 months, I think we pretty much maxed it out, honestly, without yeah. totally, without totally destroying our personal and, and family lives. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, and thinking about those two deals too, you always say, um, you know, you're judged on the deals that you don't do just as you are on the ones that you do. And and I think, you know, we made the right decision to, to kind of pull the plug on those deals for various different reasons, you know, but it, to think about the fact that we could have closed 11 acquisitions during the year is, is pretty incredible. And, you know, in comparing that to 2021, you know, I look back at 2021 and I almost feel like we took it for granted. Things were just easier in that year. Whereas, you know, 2022, we came out, we had the same end result, roughly the same equity, uh, roughly the same number of deals, but the the amount of work that it took to get that done was just exponentially higher. Yeah, it felt, it felt harder, right? And, and maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, we have, for folks who don't, I don't really talk much about the business on the show. So this is a good opportunity, maybe. Yeah. You know, we are a syndicator. We're a fundless sponsor, which means that we do not have discretionary capital. We don't have a fund to draw on. We purely go out to the market and raise deal by deal to a network of individuals and families and, and private wealth management firms, all non-institutional investors. And 
we've grown that ecosystem quite a bit, but you know, we are very dependent on investor sentimentality or investor sentiment what's happening in the market. In 2021, for the most part, we were going to our individuals and families and, and that was working really well. In 2022, it definitely got harder. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the things that we've been doing from a strategic partnership perspective, and then also all the 1031 work that we've put in the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, leading up to this year, we had done 10, one 1031 deal. Um, I believe every single acquisition we've made in 2022, every single one of them has said some sort of 1031 aspect, some larger, some smaller, depending on, on the deal. Uh, you know, for the listeners that, that aren't familiar, at 1031, um, Section 1031 in the IRS code that allows you to defer the recognition of a gain for a real estate asset by by investing in a like-kind real estate asset. Um, it's pretty pretty powerful, um, very widely used. Um, I think in 2021, or at least my um, hypothesis is that in 2021, there was so much 1031 money being put to work that your standard 1031 deal really got priced up. And so investors started looking for other ways to be able to accomplish, you know, what they were looking for from a 1031 perspective and started to seek out groups like ourselves, uh, which allowed us to kind of become, you know, what I would consider experts in the field. Whereas, uh, you know, 12 months ago, I had experience with one acquisition. Um, now I feel very comfortable with it. We, we deal with it on a daily basis. A lot of lenders um, have a little bit of fear around 1031s just from being burned in 2008, 2009. Um, you know, we have the ability to to kind of walk them through that, talk through some of the things that maybe cause fear. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's a very powerful tool for us to kind of have in our, in our tool belt. And, and I think it will continue. We're going to get into forecasting a little bit later in the conversation, but I do feel like <clears throat> it's, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself about recession and, and all that. We'll touch on it a bit. I think this is a trend that you and I will see in 2023. We've kind of talked internally about very unlikely we're going to be able to make nine acquisitions next year, kind of resetting expectations. Things are going to be a little bit more challenging on the lender side, on the equity side, and fewer participants in the market in terms of sellers who are willing to accept what pricing is. But before we get there, you talked about kind of the asset growth and the portfolio growth, the team growth. But what about and, and for those who aren't familiar, Jared really is like the intersection of all these different things that the firm does. So he knows everybody's kind of dirty laundry, for better or worse. What about from just a, a marketing perspective, how we've grown as a firm, how we think about investor relations, reporting, transparency? What are the lessons that we learned in 2021? How do we apply them in 2022? And then what do you think we're going to do next year? Yeah, I mean, it's always been our priority, right? So that's what we want to focus on. We're going to focus on that investor journey, um, kind of what we call it internally. You know, I, I think from a marketing perspective, what we really did in 2022 that we hadn't maybe done prior was we just really honed in on our message, you know, and, and kind of what our, our benefits are, what we provide the investor, and just really started hammering that out. Whereas before, we were kind of trying to do a lot of testing, a lot of A-B testing, trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. I feel like we really kind of 
like I said, honed in on, on what our message is and, and what we provide to that investor base. Uh, so that's, I'm probably most proud of that from a market perspective in 2022. Yeah. And, and have you gone back and looked and seen, you know, from a CRM perspective, how many contacts we've gained or anything? I mean, we're like up to 10,000 contacts now, I think. Um, whereas last year around this time, I want to say we were around 7,500. You know, from from a investor standpoint, I think 33% of our investors, uh, about one third of our investors during the year were were brand new uh, into our network within, you know, their, did their first investment with us. Is that right? Um, 33% yeah, of all 33%, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, and for people listening, I mean, our goal is always... 20% new LPs in, in, in a given deal, 80% repeats. That way you're always yeah. bringing in new contacts. So 33 is a, a number I hadn't heard before. That's great. That's good. Yeah. And I'm I'm proud of, a, of the 67% as well, right? On the flip side of that is, you know, looking through it, I think if I just kind of scan the accounts, it would be very difficult to find an investor that was only invested in a single deal. And I think that speaks volumes to kind of the trust that they placed in us and their experience so far. So I'm um, very happy with those numbers. Yeah, and from my own personal perspective, I know that from a, from a marketing lens, we really tried to up our game in the podcast space and in, in particular, right? So we created, and we'll probably probably get into this with with Lily on the episode that we do with with her, which is our VP of marketing. But like we created, we spent a lot of time creating automations, documented systems. We brought in a virtual assistant to really streamline things on the podcast side, both in terms of the production, but also just um, seeking out new guests, following up with prior guests, making the experience of the journey for being a guest really smooth. And I think that's been terrific. Like it's really improved efficiencies dramatically. And also I, I would give kudos to Lily because she and I, we were really hard to get the quality of the speaker. And to your point, just really getting much tighter on the audience we want to talk to, the population set that we want to have on as a guest. I mean, we've I've really been happy with not spending a lot of time with people that aren't relevant to our ecosystem and population, in my opinion, and getting really deep kind of on, on one inch of the, of the content that we want to, to get into. And I think it's yeah. made a big difference in the quality of the show as well. For sure. I mean, I was thinking about it kind of leading up to the podcast, right? It, it seems more intimidating this year to be on the podcast compared to last year. And that's not a knock against, you know, the the guests that you'd had prior to, to this year. It's just, I think you reached a little bit more of a sophistication level on a broad spectrum um, to where, you know, as I listen to, to your podcast on a weekly basis, uh, you know, they're very influential people that that are on, on there and so to be in the company of of those folks and and to be here and and doing this episode it's a little bit more intimidating this year than it was for last year well i think like anything right you want to try to i talk about this in the in the team like don't worry about getting 10 percent better annually because that seems intimidating try to get one percent better every month yeah and then at the end of the year you're going to be in that 10 to 15 percent range if you really focus on it and that's how I kind of think about the pod. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that really speaks to kind of our, our hiring as well, right? I mean, Lily has been absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, we got her right out of college and, and kind of her, her first, I guess, quote unquote, real job. And she's just really 
really taken ownership of the marketing process. And, and so really proud of her and the work that she's been able to do um, and, and proud of Clearstar Creative as well, our third party marketing consultants um, that have really helped us with kind of our messaging and, and how we look uh, investor facing. Yeah, I mean, the compliments we get from folks about how easy it is to onboard, how smooth the process is to subscribe, our marketing content and collateral in general. It's something we're always working on, but we, you know, I'm really proud of what we've done there. And another thing, you know, correlated to the podcast, and you know, you mentioned Ashley Kent and the Clearstar Creative, who are third-party marketing consultants. They really pushed me to create more original content, things that I'm actually interested in outside of real estate. And this most recent newsletter that had just got released, I haven't seen the metrics yet. We're going to go over that tomorrow in our marketing meeting, but. Based on the feedback I got, I think it's probably going to be one of our best performing pieces of the year. So yeah, I would agree. Based on on the feedback I was seeing over the weekend, you know, yeah, I, I, just, I didn't mean to crush your inbox, but it's I mean that kind of in our business we don't get a lot of positive feedback. Usually, it's people you know complaining about stuff. So it's always nice to hear people saying good things about you. <laughs> you no, know, absolutely. I I appreciated seeing it. So maybe let's talk about kind of one other what other trends we're kind of seeing you're sitting on the asset management meeting you're talking to the acquisition guys you're hearing from me about all the big families that i'm talking to and what i'm seeing at these conferences and when i travel maybe macro like where are we right now in terms of real estate and what are you forecasting for 2023 yeah so i'll try to apply that in a couple of different ways you know for, like i said earlier from the investor side we're seeing a, a an increase in 1031 investors. I don't know if that's, like I said, a factor of people looking for alternatives, you know, to a typical 1031 deal and finding folks like ourselves, or if it's a factor of the fear of 1031s going away, as the current administration has has alluded to a couple of times, or well, combination of, of all the above, probably. Uh, but we're certainly seeing an increase in, in the 1031 deals. We're seeing a reduction in their use of retirement accounts. So historically speaking, uh, we've had a lot of uh, self-directed IRAs invest in our opportunities. I don't think we may not have had a single one during 2022. If we did, it was very few. Um, so I've seen a reduction there. Uh, you know, early in the year from a from an acquisition standpoint and kind of the the purchase price of an asset early on, we're, we were seeing uh, assets really hold their prices steady. You know, as interest rates were were beginning to increase and, and we were really having the conversations around that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the folks that were willing to sell knew what asset they had and were able to kind of hold those those prices very steady and still demand that price. So I've st since started to see that come down a little bit. We're starting to see some discounts out there. Should be going on under contract on an opportunity here in, in the next couple of days, hopefully, or the next couple of weeks. In Charleston, you know, we were working on this deal back in the spring. Uh, we've seen, I think, somewhere in the 10 to 20% decrease in purchase price from what we were looking at early in the spring, which is which is huge, right? Because we're having a higher borrowing cost with the interest rate increase. You know, staying in the acquisitions lane, we're seeing loan to value decrease pretty substantially. And I, I think taking all that into account, it's more of a factor of what is unknown. I think 
there's a lot of fear right now. You don't know what you don't know. And obviously there's, there's all these items that we could talk about. You and I have these conversations every single day with investors or people in our network. I feel like we've been having the same conversations for, for nine months, 12 months. There's all these factors working against us, quote unquote, but really is that we just don't know where we're going to land quite yet. I think once we started getting some clarity on, on some of these issues, you know, in, inflation coming down, interest rates peaking, maybe coming down at some point in 2023, I, I think we'll have a little bit more clarity there over the next couple of months and be able to project out, you know, what the, the 12 months look like from there. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. You know, the, like I said many times on a lot of pitches with folks, like the Fed got what they wanted, right? <laughs> Decreased transaction volume, easy money, debt being more expensive. All of that is a rising interest rate environment is just challenging for real estate across the board, be it core development, value add, whatever. It's just challenging. And the value proposition for us as a sponsor, let's be honest, when the 10 years is, is running at 4%, and you can get some risk-free return in the four to five percent range. It's hard for alternatives, right? And for private capital. Now, I, th I still think we have a huge value proposition there, but it's it's harder to prove out. And again, that's what the Fed wanted. I personally think that the rate of increases will be lower moving forward but the terminal value of what the Fed wants to achieve will be higher than we anticipated earlier. <clears throat> so yeah. if earlier this year, people thought they're going to hit 5% terminal value on interest rates. Now I think it might be 6% or maybe even closer to 7%, but it may take them 12 plus months to get there. And so that'll hopefully decrease the volatility a little bit. I think the market will come back. There might be more pain to be had, but we're past the midterms. It seems like we're in stalemate mode in Ukraine. And you know, I think the Fed will announce a 50 bit increase, which the market is anticipating. And then they'll forecast kind of another one in Q1 and things will settle down. I don't know where the 10 year is today, but it's certainly in a better position than it was a few months ago. And so I think we'll, we'll be in a pretty good place in terms of just kind of stabilized in 2023. But again, I don't think we're going to see kind of the rip roar in time that we had. And honestly, whether or not we're in a recession, it's debatable. I mean, this gets thrown around every day. You watch CNBC. I don't. I can't mm -hmm. take it. I can't take it emotionally. But it's like one day we are, one day we're not. But it seems like whatever way we go with that, it's going to either be barely not a recession or a shallow one. And so I feel good about being able to push through it, especially given where the numbers are. So, yeah, for sure. And, and as you alluded to, that that tone changes if you watch CNBC on a daily basis. I, I'd say overwhelmingly, if you look at the year, the the sentiment has been relatively negative. Um, as I as I kind of think about the the year, it, and it, in relation to us, you know, I I kind of want to just take a posture of, of gratitude. Um, thinking about the the economy and the impact that it could have, and you know, just this is this is kind of our time to to prove our worth, right? There's a ton of real estate sponsors out there. Um, it's easy when when times are good, and you know, you're getting cheap debt and real estate's roaring and all that stuff. And when times become more difficult, I think that's when you're truly judged on your success as as a sponsor. And 
And so, you know, I'm looking at this as an opportunity to, to try to prove our worth, so to speak. We get that one and a half asset management fee for a reason, you know, as inflation increases and our CapEx, uh, you know, is, is moving at a rate that we just were not expecting and insurance on our properties in Florida is increasing and, and you have a insurance claim and asset in Kansas City that gets denied. Like those are the moments when your back's against the wall that you can really prove yourself. And, and so I'm really looking forward to, to doing that over the next year, uh, as maybe the economy is not as as advantageous as it was for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, this last week I was at a um, family office conference in Palm Beach, and I saw one of our big LPs there. He runs a multifamily office, and he's in a number of opportunities. And he, you know, was telling me how thankful he was. He's a few of them that are clipping like eleven, twelve, thirteen percent, and really executing the investment thesis and. He was very thankful to have that kind of stability within the portfolio. It might not be a huge, significant amount of money for on a nominal basis, but just the psychological ability to be sending people monthly distributions, giving them really first-class reporting, giving them some good news over the last six or nine months as we've had this horrific market drawdown. It's great. And that's obviously very encouraging, right? And that's part of the pitch that we bring, which is diversification stabilization, uncorrelated returns, what's going on in the S&P. And that's very rewarding. And I agree with you. I think there's an opportunity here to execute. Some assets are going to have challenges, right? I mean, especially if we do go into a proper recession. But the way that we conduct ourselves, I think will be a real testament to the firm. Yeah, I mean, you always say, you know, when we're talking to a new investor, judge judge sponsored by how they communicate and report when when times are tough. Uh, when things don't go the way you expected them to. And so, you know, I think one of the biggest successes that that we've had is when something goes wrong and you hear from overwhelming majority of the investors in that asset that they really appreciate your your communication and transparency during that time period. I think, you know, we've had a couple of instances, as I alluded to, where an insurance claim gets denied and, you know, it it creates issues for for the asset. And, you know, the investors have been overwhelmingly thankful for kind of our communication and, and being able to to weather the storm, so to speak. Um, and I, so I, I think that's probably the most rewarding thing for me as of late is just when times are are, are more tough and we really get to kind of put our heads down and, and prove our worth. So where do you want to go next? What do you want to do here? We've got a little bit of time. Yeah. I mean, what, uh, I got a couple of questions for you. We're gonna All right. Script a little bit. You know, we've we've had a couple of really really good years, right? Two two big years, eighteen acquisitions total. Like I said, seventy two million of of capital raised. And what do you see? What are you most proud of uh, during that time period? Gosh, it's a great question. I'll put one out there. I'm I'm really proud that nobody has left the firm. You know, um, I always tell people that join the, the the shop. You know, we have some older folks in the team. This doesn't really apply to them as much, but. If you're younger and talented, and if you come and join our firm, I think within two to three, you know, four or five years, if I've done my job right, you should be in a position where you're asking me for some crazy raise or you're telling me you're going to go start your own thing. And, um, you know, we, we haven't had anybody kind of leave yet. And, uh, you know, I think it's a testament to the, to the culture we've created which is entrepreneurial, but we don't micromanage people. We're very flexible. We work hard, right? But um, 
it's not it's not a salt mine it's not an investment bank it's not a corporate law firm where we're kind of in my opinion working like useless amount of hours public accounting similar and that's why i like people come from those backgrounds because they know what the other side looks like they come in they focus they get their work done and we reward them by like starting at six o'clock i'm offline unless i'm traveling and so i'm really proud that we haven't lost anybody especially in a very frenetic job market um maybe not the last six months but certainly before that i mean I don't know how many uh, inbounds a day you, from headhunters you get, but I imagine it's a big number. I'm sure Taylor's yeah. the same for her. So. Same, and I'm sure for Sam and William and all those guys, I'm sure it's exactly the same. You know, and I, I would have to second that. You know, that we just got out of a time period that was going to turn great resignation, and oh, every friend I have was switching jobs and moving around, and you know, all these different things. And for us to not have a single team member leave during that time period, I think speaks testament to the, uh, you know, the company that we've built and, and, you know, treating them right. So, uh, I would second that and also very proud of that over the last two years. So I guess taking it a step further than, you know, what, what would you see as, you know, both your, your biggest challenge of 2022 and then kind of our biggest, our best, biggest success as well. To, to the kind of all the metrics that we threw out there earlier, Biggest challenge is onboarding that amount of volume efficiently. When you're when you're doing, you know, two deals a quarter, deal and a half a quarter, um, and they always come lumpy. It's um, it, it's hard to transact at that speed with the size of the team that we have, and I, I think people don't who are in the business, or maybe don't have a transactional professional services background or financial services background. It is a lot of brain damage getting that amount of deals done. I mean, I always tell people like there are three, um, there are three challenges for every deal, and one occurs at the beginning, one's at the middle, and one's at the very end. And somebody will come to you and say, "These are deal killers. Like we cannot do this." And our job as the sponsors to work through that, problem solve it, and to be able to be creative and, and come up with solutions to get those things done. But when you're doing the pace of acquisitions like we have, that is very hard to do. And then on the other side, once you're bringing these assets onto our platform and the new investors and all these other things, I'm really proud that you know, we have not sacrificed communication, transparency, investor relations, reporting, um, the the soft touch things that we do. We didn't sacrifice any of that just to get those deals done, which is a trap that I've fallen into before. And so I'm really proud of just our ability to to digest that amount of deal volume, but maintaining our, our quality. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would I would love to to sit back and kind of see um, over the course of the year how much time we're spending raising capital or getting through due diligence or whatever it might be, and and kind of how those items all overlap as you try to get through through an acquisition, I think it'd be pretty interesting to see it. You know, as we think about the fact that we've raised $72 million over, over two years, uh, you know, how many weeks out of the year were we actually focusing on doing that? I would say it was pretty minimal, right? Um, so, you know, I think our business model is is incredible and I think it's the the right choice. But if we were to be raising a fund per se, you know, how much, how many dollars could we raise? You know, I think it would be 
pretty high just from the network that we've built and the partners that we've, we've, you know, kind of brought in, it would be pretty cool to see. So what then uh, are you most looking forward to in 2023? What am I most looking forward to in 2023? Gosh, from a business perspective, I most looking forward to, you know, I really want to tackle the social media channel. And I know that's probably not the answer that some people would expect. And some sponsors shy away from talking openly about everything they do to help raise capital and all that kind of thing. But right now, we're, we've got the podcast. We do some great in-person things. We have LinkedIn. But I'm excited to get into some of these other channels and platforms, if nothing else, to engage LPs that otherwise aren't engaging with our podcast or LinkedIn or in-person events. Because... We have so much content and so much knowledge in the firm and on the team that we can share with people and be a resource for them. That I think now that we've got kind of the basics down and I feel very comfortable with it, I'm excited to go try out TikTok, Instagram, do more video. We know we moved into a new space, which we didn't even get into, which has a designated and dedicated recording area. So I'm excited to explore that as a way to engage with our current investors and the ecosystem and, and also obviously create some new relationships. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking about marketing in the beginning of this, um, you know, the, the thought that just kept popping into my head is uh, the rate of change that we've seen as we've focused on the marketing side of things, right? What worked in early 2020 doesn't work today. The one constant that we've seen, I think, is that social media has continued to play a very important role. Uh, and we really haven't ventured too far into that, right? We have an Instagram account. We are very active on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, th I think there is a huge opportunity to be had uh, as, you, as you look at other uh, real estate professionals and kind of their utilization of, of say, TikTok and, and Instagram and, and some of these other social medias that, you know, I think we're just now getting to to kind of scratch the surface in and could be a pretty good catalyst for us as as you see um, kind of the, one of the greatest wealth transfers or the greatest wealth transfer that this world has ever seen to kind of a younger generation that spends a lot of the, their time on on those uh, mediums. You know, TikTok, I've heard some say, yeah, obviously there's the fears of, of China and everything there, but I've heard some say that, that TikTok could... Um, you know, take the place of Google one day because people my age, that's where they go to get information, uh, whether it be about investing or what to buy or whatever it might be. You know, so I think the more that we can move in into those mediums, I think the, the better it's going to be for us for sure. So what what then has changed, I think, for you since we began this journey together in 2019? Obviously, Excelsior, I'd say the core values of, of kind of what we preach and that message that of who we are and stay the same. But what what are the what are the biggest changes that you've seen since since we started Excelsior? I know there's been a lot happen. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer -peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. Uh, I mean, uh, 
this seems cliche, but I just think technology in general. Yeah. I mean, in 2019, when we were starting this, we had a we didn't have a website, we didn't have a podcast, we didn't have a CRM, we didn't have an investor relations portal, we didn't have an asset management tool, we didn't have a a streamlined um, offering process where we utilized automation and AI and third parties to kind of make that really smooth deliverable to our investor base. We had none of it. It was very analog. We were sending out manual emails. Um, we, we didn't have a newsletter. We weren't really communicating with people. We didn't have a social media strategy, right? So you just think about like our capital stack, which is a concept that I didn't even know what that was in 2019. I didn't know what that term meant. Like, and now you and I talk about our caps, our, our tech stack rather, sorry. We talk about our tech stack all the time. And like, we run an audit on it every six months and we think, okay, are we using the right things? How can we get a little bit smarter with HubSpot and Juniper Square? And, you know, we just onboarded an asset management tool to help with all that. I just think it's totally changed the game for, for our business. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would tend to agree. Uh, you know, Juniper Square is kind of where we started. That that was a game changer. Uh, then we brought on a CRM to kind of fill the void that that parts of Juniper Square weren't filling. Uh, you know, and began with Active Camp Active Campaign, and then replaced Active Campaign with a new CRM and moved to HubSpot so that we could see kind of KPIs a little bit better. And then, as you mentioned, we're we're moving towards you know onboarding a, an asset management program. Uh, and and being able to streamline some of of the the items that that have been very manual over the last um, couple of years, I think it, that's going to you know maybe maybe investors aren't going to see that as much as they do the the things that come out of Juniper Square or HubSpot. But uh, in terms of our ability to make decisions quickly, uh, I'm really looking forward to to what that provides. So what's what's next for Excelsior, Brian? Do you uh, you see any new asset classes out there, or you know something different that maybe we haven't ventured into? I thought you and I could move to the Bahamas to start a crypto exchange. Yeah, why not? I mean, that seems like a good thing to do right now. Get get some get some speed, and we'll just hang out. Um, Again, you want to talk about you know how things have changed in the last year? That's that's got to be one of the major ones, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like I really, yeah, I mean, I've got some crypto with Gemini and they're now have like paused redemptions. It's not much, but you know, yeah. I like, I, I went on today and it's interesting. Like they've paused, paused redemptions. They say they're liquid, but if you change your password, which I forgot my password, so I need to like reset and all this nonsense. If you change your password, if you reset it, it's a 72 hour delay of being able to redeem anything. Oh, wow. Like, where that, what, where was that policy when I signed up? Probably not the fine. Yeah. Print, I promise you that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy how things have changed just in general, but I, I, that's got to be at the top of the list, right? I mean, you logged into LinkedIn a year ago for touting it for the most part. I mean, there were a lot of naysayers as well, but um, now you, you walk into LinkedIn and kind of scroll through the feed and it's all, you know, Either how did we miss this, or I told you so, or whatever it might be. Well, um, and that's, that's, that has certainly know, changed. The service that we provide to our investors, not every deal is going to be a home run. Not every, not every deal is going to work. But when you compare it to these, some of these burgeoning alternatives or private investment opportunities, suffering a permanent loss of capital 
is just so painful for an individual investor. Because not only is it the, the actual loss, I mean, you're the CPA, when you run the numbers, you actually need to outperform dramatically to make up for that loss, given the opportunity cost that you gave up by staying in the deal for a year, two years or whatever. And it, it can be, it can be pernicious for those investors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that can compound as well. Um, so it's, it's just even more, more imperative, but you know, it is what it is. So what's, uh, let's end this on, on a very positive note. What is the most interesting book that you read during 2022? Yeah, I mean, I've I've said this to you, but the the Peter Zihan book, the end yeah. of the world is just the beginning, um, just like blew my mind. These are things that I've been commenting and remarking and observing and seeing, but having it and it's way too long winded, but just hammering home this idea that you know deglobalization gets thrown around a lot, including by me, but just this idea that the world that we've lived in, I'm forty. Right. So this world that I lived in since the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is about when I was three or four, up until now has been relatively stable, relatively peaceful. Right. We haven't had any major global conflicts. The economy has grown dramatically. International markets have grown dramatically. The bread and woods constructs of the United Nations and NATO and World Bank and the IMF, they've all functioned pretty well. These are structures that people respected for the most part. That's all kind of going away, right? And a world where the United States puts boots on the ground internationally to do nation building is, is that that is gone. There's no political will there on either side of the spectrum. And so we just as investors need to recalibrate our theses around those assumptions that we just, I thought they were rock hard assumptions. I thought that we were in a global interconnected world. And to some extent we are because of technology, but I think there's a massive realignment coming along here. That's going to be the world that I, my children inherit. And so that's called, it's not all negative. I can be very bearish on this subject. I think the U S is really well positioned actually, but I think we just need to, really reformulate how we think about the world, you know, moving forward and we can get political, you know, the midterms didn't go like Republicans thought they were. There's, there's gridlock, which I think is probably good, honestly, but it's really shaping up to be 2024. Is this going to be an election of change? Are we going to have Trump Biden 2.0, which I don't think anybody wants regardless of your political leanings, I think it's a very bad testament to the United States. Or are we going to have some younger people with some different ideas who actually reflect the demographics of America? And it you know, remains to be seen. But I think that's the biggest thing I'm tracking the next 12 months. Yeah, for sure. And if you're not familiar with, with the book that Brian was, was speaking about, I believe it's called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. I highly recommend it. I'm I'm still not finished. I'm most of the way through the book, but so far, highly recommend it. It's just completely changed my outlook on a lot of different things, you know. And I think it's interesting that that you know one of the things that doesn't get spoke about in terms of you know what what you kind of term the killer bees is you know we're also seeing this all during a time period where 
one of our largest populations population groups is leaving the workforce. So keeping that all in mind, let's let's kind of end it with this. You know, what uh based on what you've learned there, based on your new series that you just put out, the killer D's, you know, how does that change or impact, you know, how you make decisions uh for Excelsior? I don't think it fundamentally changes anything. I think domestic US real estate is still one of the best places to be. But to your point, and something that I'm so grappling with. You hear you hear commentary on this, but I don't think people appreciate how significant it is, which is this depopulation. You know, we just hit, I think, eight billion people globally, which is like peak. But but like you mentioned before, in terms of capital loss and return, growth can happen exponentially, but loss can happen exponentially as well. And we are teetering on this and it's going to start pivoting the other way very quickly, especially in emerging markets where you know, China and India and some other places, you know, 2.1 is considered the replacement birth rate required. A lot of these places, if you look at Japan, China, elsewhere, they're in the mid to low ones, if not lower. And so you're going to see some really dramatic changes around that. And I still can't figure out if it's inflationary or disinflationary. People argue it both ways, but something real is going to happen. And you are seeing this in terms of our our limited partner, our investor community, where and part of the reason we need to be aggressive with social media is we need to get younger. Like, yeah. I think that the team is young. Like we can always get younger as a team, but I think our investor relations has to get younger quickly. Because if I had to guess, I haven't drawn the numbers, but I would think that our average investor is like a 65-year-old white guy, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say that's a fair assessment for sure. Yeah, um, and so that's and, just and like so this. That, you know, but, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's where you know I think our internal conversations of of like as you just alluded to, getting younger, focusing in on you know that that sector that maybe we haven't quite captured yet. You know, of the ten thousand people that we have in in our network, uh, we certainly need to provide some love there and and try to you know, kind of bring them along through the investor journey, so to speak, get them familiar with us, be continue to be a resource. But I think we need to do a little bit, probably a better job of, of really focusing in on the, the younger subsection there of the people that are in that, that 10,000. But yeah, I, you know, to your point about how does it impact Celsius, and I don't think I ever answered your question about new asset classes. You know, one of the reasons I like being a fundless sponsor is we have huge optionality and flexibility. And so I do think we're going to find some value add deals. I do think we're going to find some broken deals, some distressed sellers. And I think we can take advantage of that. But I don't see us fundamentally doing anything crazy. If anything, the last six months have shown that some of these niche esoteric investments, and, and this is really a question that I ask super smart people to come on the podcast. Like, were these crypto bros and tech bros and whatever SPAC people like, were they really that smart or were they just, re- or were they just riding low interest rates? And like, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit of both, but I like our kind of basic fundamental business. I think you're going to see more and more people want access to good quality real estate, good quality private equity. And I continue to see a huge opportunity set for people who don't have that access today and they're going to want it moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just continuing to prove out our, our thesis. So 
lightning round for you. Will, when we do this next year, will Ole Miss be competing for the college football playoffs next year? I knew you were going to go there. I, I thought you were going to go the Lane Kippen route. Uh, will Lane, Lane Kippen be at Ole Miss next year? I don't know. For those of you that don't know, I graduated from Ole Miss with my huge undergraduate and, and master. Huge, huge Ole Miss fan. Huge fan. Not really. I, I do follow. I do follow it, but I'm not I'm not that crazy into it. You know, I think the one thing I do know is that Lane Kiffin is going to get paid. Mm. Um, it, it is a young team. I, I do not think they are competing for the um, college football playoff next year, though. So, lighting round number two, we're going to save the SEC. Vanderbilt currently on a two-game SEC win streak, rolling into UT. Or I think UT's here next week. Ability to go 500 on the season. Next year, will Vanderbilt be over or under on two SEC wins? Well, first off, one of my favorite things to say over the last couple of weeks is it feels like 98. Because mm. living in Nashville, we're around Tennessee fans quite often. Not that I dislike them by any means, but I just get to hear about them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so first and foremost, I would love for Vanderbilt to give them their third loss next weekend or this upcoming weekend. Over under, you said two losses, two wins, two SEC wins, two wins. Sorry, yeah, I, I think they can get. I think they can get two wins next year. We'll see. What else you got? I don't know, man. We're bumping up against time. We've blown through our forty-minute window here. But what does a- what does former Vanderbilt great Pat and Robinette say for for next mm-hmm. year? Yeah, so th- for those of you who don't know, my brother-in-law, my youngest brother-in-law, was a quarterback at Vanderbilt when James Franklin was there. Seems like a back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, but they were very competitive when he was there. He reminds me of this very often, of how great they were. And um, he was pretty bearish on the program at the beginning of the season. But yeah. uh, like like most bandwagon fans, he is all in on crushing the Balls for Life Nation next week. I'm trying to get him oh, to come to town. For it. I don't think it's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, being sure bowl el- a lot of being bowl eligible is a huge deal, just like for the program and the ability to get the extra practice time. And so, I, you know, I think they're trending in the right direction. The coach is a contemporary of my wife. He's from Nashville. He went to NBA, uh, played at Vanderbilt. So, I mean, I, I just think it's good for the city to have a competitive team. And um, so... We'll have to see the UT game with their quarter right being out. I don't know. I haven't looked at the spread, but I think it's going to be pretty tight. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what they're fighting for. They still have a chance for New Year's six bowl. And, you know, I'd be happy for them if they get it. Uh, nothing against Tennessee whatsoever. I just, you know, when you, when you, when you're around Tennessee fans all the time, you know, you just, you get to hear it a lot. That's all there is to it. Well, and I'll be in, I'll be in Dollywood for the games. That's right. I'll be in the, I'll be in the heart, right. I'll be in the heart of BFL Nation. So. I thought I was uh, I was in the the Smokies for the Tennessee Alabama game, and it was a riot. Um, so I did not go to the game, but I was a, I was close by, and it was pretty insane. Um, so good for them for for kind of turning around and having a great year. I'll have to I'll have to cover up my Vanderbilt ankle tattoo up there. Get yeah, fights. <laughs> please please tell me you have a Vanderbilt ankle tattoo. Jared Arnold, thanks for all that you do, buddy. Yeah, thank you, sir. I really appreciate the opportunity. And and as I said, I'm just 
you know, really looking forward to kind of what 2023 has in store. And um, there may be some some negative sentiment around it. But as I said at the beginning, this is kind of our opportunity to prove our worst. And I'm excited about it. 100%. Well, thank you for listeners that suck it out for this long. This is a bit of extended, but we have a lot to cover. We didn't even get to all the talking points, honestly. So maybe we just have to make this a quarterly deal. But um, if you did enjoy it. Let's do round two. <laughs> let, leave us a rating. Let us know if you have criticisms about Jared, please email me directly. I'd be happy to talk to you offline about the critiques and how we can do better. But seriously, thank you all for everything you do and support for us and appreciate all the listeners out there. And Jared, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.